And welcome to the John 315 Podcast, the show where we break open the mysteries of the most popular and misunderstood Bible verses and put them back into context. I am your host. They call me Jonathan, used to see through a computer screen darkly, Van Shank. And here is my co-host. They call him Jeremy, but now we see face-to-face Swingle. Well, Jeremy, why do they call you, but now we see face-to-face? Well, John, I think it might have something to do with the fact that instead of meeting over Skype to record this podcast, you and I are standing right in front of each other here in this illustrious garage. Oh, yeah. This garage is like the perfect soundscape for this podcast that we're recording. And we might have screaming babies at some point in the background. You, you just never know. It's, it's quite a party here in my parents' garage. <laughs> So John, John is uh, visiting um, over here, uh, and uh, so yeah, we're just having fun recording the podcast together. Uh, so we, we now we see face to face. It's true. Yes, we 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 used to know in part, but now we will know fully, even as we are fully known. Amen to that. <laughs> Well, hey, we got a whole lot of content to get to today, so let's just jump straight into the Bible. Cut the chit-chat. Let's crack open the word. So today we got a real doozy, guys. Uh, Jeremiah 29 11 is just a famous verse, and I'm going to go ahead and read it here in the ESV for you all. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now, notice we just quoted it in the ESV, but this verse is, I think, typically quoted in the NIV, which has different translation choices. It says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. So I think that's the way I normally hear this verse quoted. Um, So we're also going to keep in mind the the NIV here as well as the ESV, which tends to be our preferred translation. So that's what we're looking at here. John, what do you think about Jeremiah 29 11? This one's a doozy, huh? Yeah, totally. Jeremiah 29 11. It's one of those like really popular inspirational Bible verses that, uh, you know, is out there oftentimes ends up on like graduation cards and, you know, inspirational posters and things like that. Uh, I mean, if you do a quick Google search of like, you know, most famous Bible verses, uh, Jeremiah 29:11. it's going to be one of the first that pops up. There was this uh, a blog post, actually, from 2018 on BibleGateway.com, and it indicated that Jeremiah 29:11 was the most read Bible verse on their site that, that year. I mean, it even overtook uh, John 3:16. So I think that means, John, maybe we should have called our podcast the Jeremiah 2910. Because <laughs> apparently John 316 isn't the most popular verse in the Bible. Yeah, well, it definitely seems to be pretty neck and neck with John 316. Because actually on that same post uh, on Bible Gateway for the two years prior, Jeremiah 2911 was actually like second most read Bible verse. So it's been neck and neck with John 316 for a while here. But anyway, the point here is that this verse is huge. So, you know, it's inevitable that we are going to have to come around to this one eventually. But, you know, let's consider that despite this being, you know, one verse that's quoted constantly, this is also a verse that has the most egregious ignoring of context of, you know, any of those super popular verses. I mean, how many people actually know what the book of Jeremiah is about as a whole? I mean, it's like one of the longest books in the Bible, apart from the Psalms. And it's like super depressing. Like the vast majority of the book is just like a huge downer. 
you know, it concerns a period of history that really we don't talk about a whole lot, and it's not really well understood in today's church. You know, it's talking about the, the exile of the Israelites. Now, you know, a lot of our Old Testament knowledge kind of consists of these Sort of, well, kind of random dis- disjointed stories, you know, you know about like Adam and Eve and Noah and the animals and stuff like that. And, you know, maybe you got some of the highlights from like Abraham and Joshua and David, you know, like all of these greats of the Old Testament. But really, we kind of lack a perspective of the whole like narrative arc of the Old Testament, like the the, the story of this entire collection of documents. And that's kind of what's coming into focus right here is that we're getting towards the end of the story of the Old Testament with the exile. And this is kind of like, this is the climax in a a sense of it. It's sort of the place where things, they come to a head really at at this point. Everything in the Old Testament so far has been leading up to this moment of the exile. Yeah, yeah. So that being said, I mean, like, the here's the popular misunderstanding that we're going to, like, smack down with, like, facts and logic today. So, you know, so here, here's here's the way that the, you know, the explanation of Jeremiah 29, 11 usually goes. It's like, I know the plans I have for you. And, you know, that means that the Lord, he wants you to succeed in everything that you do. You know, he's got this great plan for your life. He's got all of these goals, you know, all of these like milestones that you're going to hit. You're going to end up at the right college. You're going to marry the right person. And, you know, it's it's there's this like narrative about your life that God is telling and it's this like awesome plan that he has now you know the the popularity of this understand of this interpretation of the verse can really be seen in the variety of uses and merchandising of this verse that you see in a lot of Christian bookstores. Well, I guess that you used to see in Christian bookstores. I don't, I do, are Christian bookstores a thing even anymore? I don't, I don't know. know. If they weren't already dead, COVID killed them. Yeah, totally. Well, okay, so I guess at least on like Etsy, that like, you know, alcove of Etsy that's Christian merchandise. But... <laughs> So you'll see, like, you know, this verse engraved on wall art or, you know, put in candles, which, I don't know, the candles is kind of a funny one because it's like, you know, the thing's going to burn down. Well, that reminds me, in the book of Jeremiah, I remember the king who does burn the scroll that Jeremiah <laughs> so, so, I mean, there's something, like, prophetic, truly, about the yeah, like, <laughs> Jeremiah 29-11 candles. <laughs> That's really good. Yeah, yeah, so it's like on candles and t-shirts and key rings and mugs and graduation cards. So so, you know, it, it like shows up a lot in Christian daily devotionals as well. Um, you know, and they'll like a lot of times use this verse as this like springboard to discuss how like once again, that God's got this wonderful plan for your life. And, you know, presumably, again, it's like these milestones of like you're going to meet the right person. You're going to get a fulfilling job. You know, God has this plan for you never being sick and you're going to have like respectful and obedient children because God's got this awesome, fulfilling plan for your life. Now, I mean. These are all, of course, like, good things to want and desire. Like, I mean, of course, you, like, want to marry, like, you know, a person who shares values with you and you want your children to be respectful and obedient. But, I mean, we're going to argue that Jeremiah 29, 11 is not this, like, blank check that God is giving to you of saying, like, yes, I'm definitely going to guarantee you get all of these things in your life. You know, and, and I guess even more insidiously, this verse can also be used as a, like, I don't know, an excuse for kind of satisfying our own lusts or our own, like, desires for accumulation of things, um, uh, uh, you know, or, or this, like, inward focus of really my life is about fulfilling myself. 
and that, you know, again, God has given me this blank check promise that I am going to be fulfilled in and of myself. Yeah, John, I think that's definitely the Christian bookstore church merch, like seeker sensitive mega church pastor approach to the verse. But I think we're going to kind of shock our listeners here. Uh, there's another pretty bad misinterpretation of this verse that I think is going over a lot of our heads. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So I think there are some who, in an effort to distance themselves from that kind of gross, egregious misunderstanding that you just described, they kind of go too far in the opposite direction. And I've noticed myself, it's become commonplace for people who really love God and are serious about the Bible and want to, you know, dig into the original context of Jeremiah 29 to just write off these Christians who are using the verse for personal inspiration. And so you, you get people saying things like, Jeremiah 29:11 isn't about you, man. Man. It's about the exile of the Judeans from Babylon. And <laughs> maybe not the greatest impression. That's kind of rude. <laughs> Tell me how you really feel about these kind of people, Jeremy. <laughs> well, you know, they, they mean well. And, and we I always appreciate digging into context. But of course. And like, you know, I, I think they are they are trying to protect a very important truth. And that is that you can't just like wholesale assume that Bible verses are necessarily about you in the present day. So, I mean, they're kind of right in that sort oh, of sense. They're totally right in that sense. Yes and amen. But is it true that Jeremiah 29, 11 isn't about us like at all? Like it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with us. I protest that idea. <laughs> in fact, I actually think the first misinterpretation might be closer, really, to what the verse is about. So this is you're saying that, you know, the interpretation that God has a plan for you of, you know, this blank check thing is probably closer than the person who says, basically, don't even bother reading Jeremiah because it's not relevant to you. Sure. And I think that might be a bit exaggerated because most people saying this would definitely say Jeremiah holds value for us as believers today. But the rhetoric they're, they're, they're sometimes using, I've heard people say to me, you know, Jeremiah 29, 11 isn't about you, which I think is just flat out wrong. It's not primarily addressed to us today, but it is certainly about us. And we're going to talk about why that's the case. So, you know, I, <clears throat> while we definitely want to go against this kind of like uh, this really popular and I think really awful misinterpretation of the verse to, to you know, satisfy our, our cravings and all the things that we want on this earth. And we're, you know, we'll get into why that's wrong. But I also don't want to turn this into, oh, because it was about the exile of the Judeans, therefore, you know, we should just leave it there and not think about how it actually applies in a pretty incredible way to us. And it's not entirely wrong to think of this verse as a super inspirational Bible verse. You know, the problem is simply that people are lacking the context which we're going to dig into, and it'll be awesome. The problem, But it's not actually a bad verse to use as an inspirational Bible verse. We just need to understand it in context. So, that being said... <laughs> so, I mean, it, it sounds like then that for tackling Jeremiah 29.11, we're going to have to work really hard to separate out these two issues. So, kind of the first issue is the one that relates to the exile of the Judeans in Jeremiah 29, which is kind of like what this whole chapter is talking about. And, and don't worry, we're going to get into this whole thing in just a second here. But that's one whole issue of essentially what did what did the verse mean to its original audience? And then the second one is, you know, how do we make sense of this verse uh, uh, in the present day? And how is how is this applicable to ourselves? 
which actually kind of ties in really well with what we were talking about last week of how the New Testament authors will utilize the Old Testament of, you know, first understand what did the verse mean in its context and then understand how the New Testament authors apply it. We're basically arguing for the same thing here of understand what it meant then and then from that make sense of how we can, you know, utilize it today. It's time for the meat. Okay, so we'll get into part one here, the exile. So first, let's do a little bit of historical work and a bit of a theological recap on what this, the the exile is. You know, so since we're in this area of biblical history that's often kind of overlooked or skipped, you know, you kind of go straight from like David and, you know, maybe Solomon and then Jesus. But, you know, there's like hundreds of years between Solomon and Jesus. So let's like dig into kind of what's really happening there. Well, so we talk about the exile, but in in truth, there are actually two exiles that happened. So there was first one exile that happened of the northern king of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC. And this happened. So the Assyrians come through and they, you know, wipe out and, you know, collect up and herd up all of the northern kingdom and ship them off. Uh, And that happens in 722 BC. Then later, there's the second kingdom of Judah, which is, you know, this is where Jerusalem is. Uh, And then Judah kind of continued. They like saw the northern kingdom of Israel destroyed by Assyria, but they were not destroyed. If you remember back to our episode where we were talking about Proverbs uh, 29 uh, with the, uh, you know, where there is no prophetic vision, we we mentioned this, where Hezekiah, he was the king of of Judah during this period. And he was the one who saw the northern kingdom destroyed, but... Uh, uh, but, but, you know, was, was king over Judah as it was preserved during this first destruction. But then later things go pretty south for Judah uh, and they, you know, break the Lord's covenant. And then later in 586 BC, when the Babylonian King Nebuchadnezzar comes and he lays siege to Jerusalem and, you know, eventually Jerusalem, Jerusalem surrenders and Nebuchadnezzar carts off a whole bunch of people uh, back to Babylon. And it's kind of this second exile of the southern kingdom, this kind of final destruction of Jerusalem that happens that we're really going to be focusing on here. And when we kind of talk about like the exile it's this, this second destruction of the southern kingdom that we're talking about. Yeah. So later, around 539 BC, the Persians actually come and conquer the Babylonians. So again, there's a lot of names floating around here, but the point is Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar conquer Jerusalem, cart off the Israelites. And then this is now, you know, a, a time later, the Persians come and take down the Babylonians. Uh, and in fact, it's the, the Persian ruler of Cyrus the Great. He actually kind of the next year issues this decree that allows the Judean exiles to return back to their homeland for the purpose of rebuilding the temple. And so this process of, you know, returning and rebuilding, it's, it's very slow and troublesome. And, you know, there's a bunch of stuff that happens. And if you're interested, there are these two great books about it called Ezra and Nehemiah. We recommend that you read them. Uh, Inspired by God. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Uh, <laughs> totally. So that, that's kind of the whole thing is Babylon conquers, takes away uh, the, the, you know, the, the southern kingdom. Persia takes down Babylon and then allows the people to return. And it's that chunk of time when the uh, Judeans are living in Babylon that we're kind of really focusing on here as the exile. So, I mean, this exile was, of course, a horrific disaster for the people of Judah. You know, I think in the present day, we don't really have a good context for understanding how like actually awful this would be. I mean, we we like live in a time where it's super easy to move around from place to place. You know, it's really not that big of a deal to be like, oh, hey, I got this job across the country and I'm just going to like move over there and work for, you know, 10 years or whatever. Like that, that's not a big deal these days. 
But I mean, you know, at the time, travel is hard. It, you know, it, it's like not an easy thing to do. You know, people die as they're like walking from, uh, you know, Jerusalem to, you know, whatever settlement in, in Babylon they're going to end up in. You know, and, and particularly when you link this with the idea that most Judeans would be like subsistence level farmers. So, you know, they've got their like plot of land that they've been farming, that they inherited from their dad, who inherited it from their dad. And like, this is their entire livelihood is if the crops don't grow, they're going to starve to death because like that's that's what they've got. And now you've got this person who comes and conquers you and says, like, your land, it's mine now and you have to move. So pack up your stuff and start walking. You don't even have time to, like, plan for such a journey necessarily. It could just be one day you're gone. Yeah. Like, you know, you don't have time to, like, make food. And, you know, like, what are you going to do? Like, on the way, like, stop at, you know, Safeway to buy food? Like, no. I mean, you're just, like, told to start walking. And so this is this is horrifying. I think kind of the closest approximation that we would have maybe in, like, American history would be, you know, the Trail of Tears. Certainly. Yeah. Like, the this awful historical you know, event where, you know, we, we forcibly resettled. I don't, I don't know what I mean by we. I wasn't alive at the time. But, you know, the American government forcibly resettled Native Americans and lots of people died. Right. And it, they're just not ready to make that kind of a journey. Um, and we learn about that in American history. And, and I think most people hear that and think it's horrifying. But but when we think of, oh, the people got exiled, we're not like thinking of all of the the difficulties inherent in that because we're just so far removed from from the people of Judah and Israel. Mm -hmm. Totally. And, and I mean, on top of just like the economic and health disaster that would be associated with this kind of exile, I think there's also a huge, a huge amount of culture shock that would happen. Like, you know, say you even survive making it into exile. Now you're like settled in this new place where, you know, you don't know the language, you don't know the customs. You know, I mean, like Judah, this like small kingdom that's, you know, just surrounding Jerusalem was incredibly homogenous. They had this really strong national identity identity that unified them. They, you know, had their own sovereign nation and their own language and their own culture. And like now all of a sudden you are a small racial minority in this like, you know, big city or maybe next to some big city. And, you know, it's like, so even if you're able to adjust to this economic difference, you know, you're not the dominant group anymore. You're all of the food around you is different. All of the mannerisms around you are different. The language is different. And I mean, like, even if you're able to learn the new language or if you, you know, happen to know some kind of, you know, trade tongue that would allow you to communicate, like everybody is going to immediately know that you are these exiles from somewhere else. So, you know, the people of Judah, they've now, you know, become accustomed to this, you know, being this oppressed minority, and they've adopted this new way of living. But, you know, this, this culture shock, I think, is one of the really important background contexts that's going to play when we get into Jeremiah 29, 11. Certainly, John. And I think in addition to just the, the reality of the tragedy in the history, we need to acknowledge that the exile was a theological event in Israel's history. It was, you know, this big moment that kind of exploded the boundaries of what, you know, the, the theologians and the prophets, you know, were, were able to think about God. And so the prophets actually understood the exile as God's judgment against his own people for disobeying his law and for being faithless toward him. 
And we see actually that the exile was a long time coming, and it was the inevitable result of many generations of faithlessness on the part of God's people. And yeah, a lot of, uh, I think people don't notice this so much um, because we don't read Deuteronomy a lot. (laughs) But in Deuteronomy chapter 28, Moses actually kind of lays out the consequences for disobedience to the law of Moses. And to put it in context here, just real quick, let me jump in, Jeremy, that, you know, at this place in Deuteronomy, like Moses is, this is his farewell speech to the Israelites, like right before they go into the promised land to take possession of it. So this is like right at the very beginning of them settling in what would then later become the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And so Moses is like laying it out from the beginning, like, here's how it's going to be, guys. Absolutely. So take a listen to these these curses. And Moses pronounces curses upon disobedience. You're going to see, actually, that uh, the rest of the Old Testament after Deuteronomy really, really is a, an outworking of these curses. So listen, quote, The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away. Sound like Babylon and Assyria? Yep. Swooping down like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand. If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, and sicknesses grievous and lasting. And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples. That's the exile right there. From one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. So the Lord threatens these curses if the people don't obey the whole law. But after the book of Deuteronomy, we notice the people of Israel repeatedly flout God's commandments. And this is the lesson we learn more or less from Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. We notice some moments of obedience or triumph. Of course, Joshua was a good leader. David was a definite high point for the people of Israel. And there's a small handful of good kings in Judah, though there are none in the northern kingdom of Israel, which is one of the major reasons Israel fell first. Yeah, like 200 years earlier. (laughs) Right. God was a little more patient with Judah because there were some great kings like Josiah, uh, who I named my son after because (laughs) Josiah was a pretty dope king. Let's be let's be honest. Josiah was good. Yep. Hezekiah was not not too bad. No, Hezekiah was good. Yeah, there's there's some good guys in Judah, but the trend is still downward. And the prophets, Jeremiah among them, they understand that this exile is literally exactly what Moses promised through, you know, through God as God's prophet. uh, Moses promised this as a curse. Um, And the prophets are just interpreting and applying this curse that Moses identified back in Deuteronomy, and they're saying, hey, look at what we're doing. We're not obeying God. This is what we deserve. 
Yeah, for sure. So kind of with that, that, that review of both the historical and the theological context, let's now turn our attention to the chapter of Jeremiah 29. So verse 11 actually comes in the middle of a letter that Jeremiah sends from the city of Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, again, so just bringing it back. So exile, the people under Nebuchadnezzar have been taken off to Babylon, but Jeremiah got left behind, like he stayed in Jerusalem. And so now he is writing a letter to the Judeans who are already in exile. So let's start. So the the letter actually starts in verse four, and I'm going to read through verse 14 here so we can get the whole context. So um, put yourself in the mindset of a person who has just gone on this horrifying, sudden, brutal translocation where you don't know the language you know, you don't have any like financial prospects or anything, you know, you've watched, you know, your family members die of starvation on the way. And now you've gotten this letter from the prophet of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets or your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not, I did not send them declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into into exile. So one thing we should observe right away is that there are these, these plans that the Lord has for his people, and they're really specific. Like, you know, it's not like God's just saying, I got all these plans for you. I mean, he like tells them exactly what the plans are. (laughs) So he's going to restore the people back to their land from exile. So they're in exile and the Lord is promising. The plan is I'm bringing you back. He's going to gather them from all of the nations to, you know, back to the place of, you know, where they lived before from, you know, where the Lord has driven them. And so the, the Lord, basically God is going to reverse the exile here. And so this specific promises, you know, it's, it's not at all that super vague, like God has great things in store for you that, you know, Jeremiah 29, 11 is, it's usually re- reduced to. So you're saying that Jeremiah 29, 11 isn't about God helping my team win the sports ball game? <laughs> no, no, not at all. I mean, unless your sports ball game is, you know, happening, you know, in some, you know, other place where you're under, you know, great, 
you know, oppression. And if you win the sports ball game, then you're going to be allowed to come home. But I mean, even then, it's just, yeah, not at all. Not ne- at- Nebuchadnezzar and, and Zedekiah do a, a, you know, a soccer scrimmage for it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. So, you know, but in, in addition to the, the plans being specific, notice that the Lord is not going to fulfill these plans quickly. I mean, he says like 70 years. So there's no way for the people to like avoid this exile, you know, to come back for like an early restoration. You know, there's no like, you know, off on parole early thing that's going to happen here. You know, verses 10, or verses 9 and 10 make that really explicit. The Lord is disavowing any so-called prophets who are, you know, going to be speaking about peace and security. Like, I mean, you could imagine, you know, tons of people came in this exile. So ostensibly, some of them are, you know, prophets by trade. And, you know, God's basically saying they're going to like prophesy all these things about like, ah, peace and God's going to restore us. And, and God's basically saying, like, don't listen to them. They're lying. You're going to be there for a while. So you guys can't see this because this isn't a video podcast, but now that I'm in person, I now know how John behaves with his hands when he's <laughs> when he's making fun of other people with his voice. And he does this fun little like dainty kind of gr- <laughs> kind of girly thing with his hands. Yeah, I got, I got my hand on my hip and like my other one is sort of doing this little flick in the air. We should we should do a video recording of one of these sometime. <laughs> Anyway, so circling it back, the point is that the exile is going to be reversed, but the people need to endure the full extent of that exile before it is undone. John, yeah, I think it also needs to be said uh, that there's this word you in verse 11 is actually a plural pronoun in Hebrew, which is kind of weird to us English speakers. We don't have a separate word for you when we're talking to an individual versus a group. But in Hebrew and in Greek, by the way, and we'll probably have to do an episode on this at some point because it's a great topic. For sure. Uh, both Hebrew and Greek have two distinct words. So if you're talking to a whole group of people, hey, you guys go do this. There's actually a specific way to uh, conjugate a verb for that. Yeah. The way that we do it in English is say something like you guys. And then the pluraling of the guy part is how you know that it's multiple people. You know, but in English, there's no way of like, you don't put an S on the end of you, like use or anything like that. Of course, those in the South have the uh, colloquial y'all. Oh, bless the South. (laughs) And in my Greek class, uh, we definitely would, when we would, you know, vocally go through translating a verse in order to indicate that we knew it was a plural, we would say y'all. So there's a lot of, you know, the South in my Pacific Northwest Greek class. (laughs) So that being said, so of course, the reason this matters is that this misinterpretation we're tackling has all to do with, you know, oh, God's special plans for you and, the, you know, who you're going to marry and what you're going to do for work and all the money you're going to get and all that. Well, that doesn't even fly with the basic grammar of the passage. The passage is directed toward all of the exiles as a group. So <laughs> we, we just were talking about how Presumably some of them died on the way to Babylon, right? And what if there were many of those exiles who just decided, hey, forget God. He abandoned us. I'm not going to obey God. So there's lots of people involved in this exile, individual people who certainly probably aren't going to get blessed in in this like way that we're expecting. It's directed to the group as a whole. This group as a whole, y'all will come back to the land. I'm bringing y'all back. Yep. Like, but as a group, like Judah will come back. Not every single individual person 
of Judah. So with that kind of understanding that really this is about a like a promise to a corporate people, not necessarily individuals, like I I think that that's really important to keep in mind, uh, particularly in the present day where we're in in the U.S., where in a lot of cases you know we aren't we don't really suffer the kind of persecution that really the Judeans were suffering in this in this point in history. But, I mean, there's plenty of places around the world where Christians are suffering exactly that kind of persecution. I think about our brothers and sisters who are living all around the world, particularly like the underground church in China. You know, and when they read verses like this, I think that, you know, as we're kind of going to get to a little bit here, they are right to see elements of their own experience in this story that's being played out, that they corporately as the church are the recipients of God's good plans and promises. Yeah, but those good plans and promises are not trite, tame, like kind of peaceful, secure, precious moments, right? That's not what it is. And actually, if we think that the verse is like that, we're kind of like the false prophets who are ignoring the exile that is around them. And we're not actually being like the truthful, honest Jeremiah who's like, okay, yeah, God's got great things in store for us, but suffering comes first. It's going to be rough for a while, guys. Right. Jeremiah can be honest about it. And so... I think we, we and, and this is the reason why people react so strongly to this passage and perhaps go too far in saying it's not about us at all, is that it's just like, man, that is so not what Jeremiah 29, 11 is about to 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 say that it's about our job or our, about, you know, our car not working. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I want to point out one other thing, and it's not necessarily the directly related to the misinterpretation of verse 11. But I just think it's really cool that the Lord says the exiles should build houses and plant gardens and get married and have kids and seek the welfare of the city. Um, because God says in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Um, and I just think it's an, you know, it's a terrible circumstance they're in the exile, but the Lord actually gives his people an opportunity to be faithful to him despite those circumstances he's still working with them he's still like hey you're in exile for a reason but like you can still be faithful to me and i know the plans i have for you i'm not abandoning you you guys but right now this is how you how you're going to be faithful to me you're going to be good exile (laughs) right you're going to make the most of this circumstance um and that's a great way to transition into our second kind of uh, misinterpretation we're going to correct to just to point out that actually we today are also exiles and we're going to demonstrate that now and that's 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 why jeremiah 29 11 is about us because we are exiles so we need to be careful to read everything in context for sure that's the whole point of this podcast but we also need to understand how all the parts of the bible interact with one another it's not enough to just say that Jeremiah 29, 11 is about the exiles in Babylon. We also need to understand how it relates to us. Paul says in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. We as in New Covenant believers. So, in some way, Jeremiah 29, 11 speaks to us. And now we're just going to have to figure out what that way is. And I'm going to identify two major problems uh, with saying that Jeremiah 29, 11 isn't about us. The first problem is that the authors of the New Testament clearly identify New Covenant believers as 
exiles. And they directly draw from the lessons of the historical exile to speak to our concerns as believers today. Yeah, let's look at a verse that talks exactly about this. So, you know, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12 here. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. Here, Peter first says that we are chosen people, a holy nation, just like Judah was. In fact, this was kind of the whole point of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, that they'd be this, the chosen people of God. They would be this nation that like everybody, you know, the whole world would be looking toward, that they would be kind of this idea of like a kingdom of priests, of like pointing the entire world to God. You know, that was like the idea. But, you know, however, Unlike Judah, who was faithless toward God, the people of God in the new covenant who are faithful to God, they're not tied to one physical location. It's not like they're going to be hanging out in Jerusalem or anything like that, you know, necessarily. But rather, we live all over the world. You know, we were we were living in darkness, but we've now been called into light. So Peter is urging us to avoid giving into the temptations of the world around us. Now, actually, so just think about that for a second, that, you know, we are, we're not in one place, but we're scattered through the whole world. And in fact, that kind of sounds a whole lot like the language that God used in Deuteronomy, or that Moses used on behalf of God in Deuteronomy 28 of being scattered throughout the whole world. So it, this is kind of like the some of the, the subtext that's going on underneath the surface when Peter's talking here, that we as believers scattered through the whole world are kind of exemplifying this idea of being in exile scattered throughout the whole world. Now, in verse 12, he also talks about us being honorable citizens so that we can, you know, give enemies no legitimate reason to speak against us. And that by doing this, we bring honor to God and a witness to the gospel. So, you know, in that sense, it's like, you know, when you are out in ex exile, scattered throughout the whole world, you are to still live honorably. You're still to honor God. This should be, you know, ringing in our ears the words of Jeremiah 29, that we are to, you know, settle and build houses and give our sons and daughters and seek the welfare of the city. It's the same kind of idea that Peter's accessing right here. Totally. This, this has Jeremiah 29 written all over it. And of course, what Peter's saying here is also inspired by the conduct of people like the prophet Daniel, who was one of the exiles to Babylon. You read Daniel and it regularly speaks about Daniel being a good citizen and being faithful to God. He wouldn't obey the Babylonian rulers when they asked him to disobey God, but he was generally interested in the welfare of Babylon. So Daniel is one example of someone who obeyed Jeremiah 29 and ended up being a positive witness to the true God to the Babylonians, even the rulers such as King Darius and Nebuchadnezzar, who we already mentioned, who was the one who exiled them in the first place. 
And in fact, Daniel's another interesting example that he sees some of the like blessings of following God's law, even while he's in exile, that he is, you know, exalted to this very high rank inside of the, the nation that he's living in. So, you know, even though it's not in Jerusalem, in you know, according to the promise that God had given to Israel, he was he did still find this modicum of God's blessing, even in the place where he was at. So these plans to give us a hope in a future that Jeremiah mentions in 2911 could very well be being thrown into a furnace and yet God rescues us out of it, right? Like, of course, it's miraculous and amazing that God did that. But but like, you know, the idea is that he got thrown into the furnace in the first place is not exactly a pleasant idea. And yet God delivered him, right? And God was with them through it. He's planned, his plans for us are not always pleasant, but he is with us through them. And he will, in fact, deliver us. Amen. But along these lines, I mean, Paul is, is also into this idea. It's not just Peter. Paul states in Philippians 3.20 that our citizenship is in heaven. Now, he doesn't tease this out quite like Peter does with a longer theological passage, but the idea is certainly present here. There's a reason Paul uses that word citizenship. Our place of true belonging is with Christ in the heavenly places. We don't, you know, we might be citizens of the USA or of Canada or of any other government, but we're not really citizens, ultimately, of these governments. That's not our highest allegiance, according to Paul. Exactly. And, and realizing we are citizens of this heavenly kingdom helps support us as we endure this exile here on earth. Okay, so yes, having looked at 1 Peter 2, and Philippians 3, okay, sure, yes, the church in 2020 is not the same group as the exiles of Babylon in 586 BC. Duh, right? And okay. we're not ethnically Jewish either. Right. There's there's obviously differences. So in that sense, Jeremiah 29 is not written to us directly. But to stop there and go no further is to miss the whole point of the exile and what it's supposed to teach the church today. We, we have to go further. We are the you in Jeremiah 29, 11, in the sense that we also have experienced exile like they did of a spiritual sort, of course, instead of a primarily physical sort. Nobody has resettled us somewhere else forcibly, but our citizenship is in heaven and yet we still live here. And so we're commanded to seek the welfare of wherever we happen to live. And we also have a hope in a future. And the Lord also has plans to prosper us long term. That prospering does indeed come through suffering, and it comes to us as a group of people and not as individuals, certainly. But we are Jeremiah 29, 11. Like definitively, we are, you know, we should see ourselves as in line with these exiles in Jeremiah when we read it. So that's major problem number one. <laughs> it's just that we're called exiles. But major problem number two is a little bit more general. And it's just an observation about the way the apostles interpret the Old Testament when they quote it in the New Testament. And, and namely, what I want to point out is that the apostles never restrict the Old Testament to mean one thing and only one thing. The apostles recognize that the truth of God's word can have near limitless applications, and they think that it's appropriate to acknowledge when God's word speaks to something in the present, even if it's not the same historical circumstance as what God's word was originally speaking about. Yeah, let's look at an example of this. Uh, we can 
hear now the words of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, We're going to be in chapter 2, and I'm going to read for you verses 16 through 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, quote, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So here the passage is, this is immediately or soon after Jesus' birth, the wise men have come and visited Jesus, uh, uh, and, you know, Herod's found out from them, like, oh, well, who is this king? And, uh, uh, you know, Joseph's then gotten his dream, and him and, you know, Mary and Jesus have uh, rushed off to Egypt because, you know, the angel, angel warned Joseph in a dream, and now Herod, he's, like, upset, and so he goes and kills all of the boys who are two years younger. And this is utilized by Matthew as a, what he calls, a fulfillment of words spoken by Jeremiah. Now, the reference here is actually to Jeremiah 31, chapter 31. And now in Jeremiah 31, it's specifically a tragedy about the exile. Like if you read that chapter, this weeping of Rachel is, you know, you know, being utilized as a, as an idea then to talk about this tragedy of people being sent into exile. You know, here Rachel is the the beloved, favored wife of Jacob, and, you know, Jacob being the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And here, so Rachel is being, you know, portrayed as weeping for her children because of this tragedy that's befallen them. So it's about the exile, if you read the context. But, you know, you don't hear Matthew saying, well, Jeremiah 31 is only about the exiles and not about you Jews here today. No, no, he doesn't say that at all. In fact, he goes further and says the slaying of these male children in Bethlehem 500 years later is a fulfillment of those words of the prophet. Now, this is actually kind of weird to, to me in my modern ears when I hear this, this thing that it says Jeremiah 31 is a fulfillment. Like, you know, that's not really the way that I tend to think about prophecy being fulfilled. It's, you know, like a lot of times fulfilled prophecy sounds to me like someone says like, this thing's going to happen in five months or, you know, something like that. And, you know, then it's like, and it happens and you're like, whoa, it's fulfilled prophecy or, you know, more likely it doesn't actually happen. And you're like, oh, he was a false prophet. But, you know, like that, that's how I tend to think about prophecy of this like specific prediction about the future that is, you know, verifiable or, you know, it's, it's like falsifiable, like either it happens or it doesn't. But, you know, that's not really what it sounds like Matthew's doing here. Yeah, definitely. This does strike our modern ears as odd. And I think that's because we don't understand very well what the biblical prophets are all about. Again, when we talk about prophecy in the modern era, we're, we're meaning somebody who predicts the future, like you were talking about, John. Um, but fulfillment and prophecy is a way bigger category than just prediction. 
In fact, you read the prophets, it's actually rarely about prediction. I mean, the prophets do predict things and the Lord does reveal to them things that will happen in the future. But prophecy is a lot more than that. And I hope we can get to talk about that in a little more detail in the future on this podcast, because it's kind of going a little bit farther away from our main point today. But for now, let's just notice that fulfillment for Matthew certainly doesn't mean a prediction fulfillment. Instead, Matthew is noticing a pattern that is repeating in his day. The grief of the mothers in Bethlehem who are weeping over this senseless murder of their children parallels and echoes the grief of the exiles in Babylon. That's why Matthew is bringing it up. But it actually goes a little further than just echoing and paralleling the grief of the exile. Because if we go back to Jeremiah 31 and listen to what Jeremiah says next after this verse that gets quoted in Matthew 2, it's going to be kind of interesting. So listen to Jeremiah 31. Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. So like, wow, that reminds us of Jeremiah 29, right? There is hope for your future. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Notice that in Jeremiah 31, the Lord immediately seeks to comfort this weeping, you know, metaphorical Rachel, saying that the exiles will return. And it's a similar word of encouragement to Jeremiah 29. And I think Matthew is quoting Jeremiah 31, not only as a means of identifying the grief in Bethlehem with the grief of the exiles, but he's also saying that what had happened in Bethlehem prior to the slaughter of the children, namely the birth of this Messiah, Jesus Christ, That event is the means by which God's people will be delivered from their oppressors and come back to their own country, quote unquote. So by quoting this, a voice was heard in Ramah, Rachel weeping for her children, Matthew is drawing us back to that passage in Jeremiah, just like last episode we looked at being drawn back by Jesus's words into the psalm. Matthew is drawing us back into this original context of Jeremiah, where we notice that this is hope for the future. And that encourages us to think about Jesus, the baby who does evade being killed by Herod, as that hope for our future. Is it like actually a this, you know, prophetic word about like, oh, in the future, Herod's going to slaughter all these children. And maybe if you had cracked the Bible code, you would have known that or something like, no, 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 that that's not at all what Matthew is saying. He is pointing to this pattern of history, these like series of events, this pattern that seems to be repeating itself that you come back to that Jeremiah 31 is describing in like an archetype of an event. And Matthew is utilizing that same archetype of an event in this, you know, thing that happens in Bethlehem. So that in this sense, the slaughter of the children, quote, fulfills Jeremiah 31 because Jesus is this even more perfect deliverer and rescuer of God's people in the same way that the, the, the way that Jeremiah 31 ends is with this encouragement that God will deliver and redeem his people. And so in that sense, it fulfills because you're getting teed up to see Jesus then as the deliverer, as God's agent, as God himself coming to redeem his people. So what we're noticing is that Jeremiah 31 can be about both the exile and the destruction of the boys from Bethlehem. I think we've said that several times already, but just to make it entirely clear, Jeremiah 31 is not about one thing. If we take the whole Bible 
as our as our cue and not just look at the book of Jeremiah, we have to conclude that Jeremiah 31 can be fulfilled in unexpected ways. Now, there's another really striking example of this in, in this case, in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 8 through 11. So Paul here, he's just explained that it is right to expect the Corinthians to provide for his needs. So he's writing to the Corinthian church and he's saying that like, hey, you know, like it's it, you guys should be expecting to essentially be paying my my way as I'm here in Corinth, that that's not like an unreasonable thing to be expected of you. So here's the quotation. Do I say these things on human authority? That is, these things have, you know, it, it, it's right to expect to pay me here. Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So you see here that the reason behind this law of like, don't muzzle out an ox while it treads out the grain, which, you know, is one of those like pesky Old Testament laws, you know, that usually <laughs> we as modern Christians are like, ah, you don't got to worry about no that. No relevance whatsoever. Who cares about the law? Right. Yeah. And, you know, Paul's just saying right here, the, the idea of this law is that it's unwise to expect something or someone to work for you if you aren't even going to give them the sustenance that they need to do that. At work. And so if it's wrong to, in that sense, like take advantage of an ox, you know, forcing it to work without feeding it, then, you know, and this ox is just like, it's just a beast of burden, then like how much more ridiculous is it to expect people to work for you, particularly in the ministry of the word among you, if you're not going to support their physical needs? So if Paul is, he's going to labor and preach and teach the Corinthian church, it's only fair that they provide for his basic needs to free him up to use all of his time and energy directed toward, in that sense, the ministry of the word. Now, what's one thing that I immediately jumps out at me is that Paul reasons like this without any explicit warrant for this in the law of Moses. He's just like, duh, this verse about an ox treading out the grain is about pastors being paid. Like it's, <laughs> and, and he, like, even, didn't you guys know this? Yeah. He's even indignant about it. He says, does not the law say the same? Like he's wondering why they would not realize this almost, you know, it's like to Paul, it's just so painfully obvious that this old Testament law about ox has application for paying pastors that it's like painful for him to even have to say it. Right. Yeah. And I love how he just like, is it for oxen that God is concerned? <laughs> right. Like certainly like God cares about all his creatures, but come on, like you see the last verse of Jonah. <laughs> right. Yeah. But he concludes like, well, it had to have been written for our sake. Right. It's, it can't be just about oxen. There's something uh, to this law for us today. So kind of looping it back, hopefully starting to land the plane a little bit here. We've we've wandered to a lot of texts, but does anybody know how to fly a plane in, in, in this podcast? <laughs> certainly not us. We need we need Griffin Schaefer to come on the podcast sometime because he can he can land these planes for us. Uh, but anyway, so so circling back to Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. So when we're interpreting this verse. Uh, what we've identified here is the way that the New Testament authors utilize the Old Testament is in such a way that it's like we shouldn't expect these Old Testament prophecies 
or these, you know, these Old Testament words to be exclusively about one particular context and one event in history only, but that they can have application and meaning beyond just the specific like people who would have heard those words initially. So, you know, if we understand that idea right here, it, it brings to bear that then we should expect Jeremiah 29.11 also then should have some kind of application, some way that we can make sense of it in our current context, that it means something for us as well. And so when we go and examine the, the, the information about the verse and see, it's like, oh, it's talking about exiles. And then we look in the New Testament, we're like, oh, Peter applies this title, this idea of exiles to us as the church, that and we can look back at Jeremiah 29, 11 and see that like, ah, oh, yes, there is this broader, fuller fulfillment of Jeremiah 29 that is about us as the church, that we also are going to be the recipients of God's good plan. And of course, that specific plan, as we mentioned earlier, is return from exile. So yeah, God tells us exactly what it is. Like right. we know how this story ends. He's going to be gathering his people from all throughout the world and drawing them to together in one. And so therefore we should not be thinking about God planning for us to have, you know, a solid six figures job and, you know, uh, a spouse who is always really nice to us and all the other <laughs> things that come along with like this, even though those are wonderful things to have, but rather it's promising us that the Lord will vindicate us and will take us to be in heaven with him, where our citizenship truly lies, that there will be a reversal of this exile, that God's people will live with him. He will walk among us. He will be our God and we will be his people. That's Amen. this promise. Jeremiah 29, 11 is for us in the church. Absolutely. But not in this corny way. And so that's kind of how we're bringing this together. And to be clear, we're not saying that the Bible can mean anything. Uh, that's really important to distinguish this because it, we're, not, we're not saying that like passages can be fulfilled in any way we want them to. We're just pointing out that if we are correctly understanding the truth in one passage in its original context and we're understanding what the exile was and why Jeremiah is talking the way he is, if we understand the uh, perhaps we should say the theological logic behind <laughs> behind that passage and why Jeremiah said the things he said, then it is totally valid to apply that to different circumstances than the original passage. In that sense, Bible passages can be about many things, <laughs> but not in the sense that like the Bible can mean anything we want it to mean. And that's, that's very, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious because we always talk about how the Bible doesn't mean whatever we want it to mean, but we need to look at context. Probably pretty obvious, but good to distinguish because the, the verbiage sounds similar between those two ideas. But by the way, I, I think it's <laughs> worth pointing out, Jeremiah 29, 11 isn't the only passage that you'll hear people kind of reduce to just the Old Testament people. Um, the one that, that often comes to my mind, and I've heard people kind of rant about this before, is like, you know, when people preach sermons about David and Goliath, and they'll say like, <laughs> they'll say like David is, you know, this like hero, and you know, what's your Goliath, right? You need to overcome the challenges in your personal life. Maybe you Let's know, find the smooth stones in your life 
so you can slay the giant. <laughs> right? Like, like, you know, your boss is Goliath, right? And your boss is a jerk and you have to deal with him every day. How are you going to slay your Goliath, right? And, and then you'll rise up to be the your own king of your Israel. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, so obviously that's super corny and not like really true to the purpose of the passage. But it's also annoying, I think, it is my opinion here. I'm going to start sounding off. You'll get these people who are just like, actually, you're not David. You're the quivering and fearful Israelites, right? David is Christ, and you're the Israelites who won't fight Goliath. And then David slash Christ saves you the way that David saved the Israelites from Goliath. And, uh, you know, so the satire site, the Babylon Bee, which I love. Oh, 10 out of 10 would recommend. <laughs> They've actually done quite a few joke articles about this. And, you know, basically they're saying it's silly to compare your problems in life with the prospect of defeating a giant war champion who has a spear. right? Yeah. Who's going to, like, come conquer your land and take your women and stuff, you <laughs> and know, like kill you all. And you're like, man, I can't find a parking spot. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta slay my Goliath. Right. So they've made fun of that. There's a great article they did called Which Character Are You? And the Story of David and Goliath. Take the quiz. Which we'll put in the show notes, by the way. Right. And the punchline is, I mean, we're going to give it away, even though. <laughs> it's even still though funny. Notes, yeah. The punchline is that you're the Israelites, no matter which answers you select. <laughs> and it's great. Okay. It's, it's funny, right? It's true that that way of like preaching David and Goliath is stupid. But I think it's also simplistic to say that we shouldn't take examples of moral courage from David. Like, yeah, why shouldn't we be David? Hebrews 11, the, you know, the big chapter talking about the people who are examples of faith from the Old Testament. It talks about Abel and Noah and Abraham and Moses. In verse 32, David's mentioned. So David is among these people in the Old Testament who we are supposed to take moral inspiration from. And so, yes, Christ is the greater king in the line of David and the ultimate purpose of David is to point us to Christ, but it is not invalid to see David, you know, standing up to this big giant as like, it's some sort of moral lesson for us. Of course, it's a moral lesson for us. It can be both. Once again, <laughs> it can be about more than one thing. It can be a type of Christ rescuing, the, you know, rescuing us from our enemies and it can also be about how we should be courageous. Enough about that. That's me sounding off on, on just that because it kind of bothers me. But the point is that this whole overreaction to popular Old Testament misinterpretations, it kind of comes across as like, hey, you know, didn't, didn't you know that this passage isn't really about you? It's about the Israelites. And I think it's a weird thing to say when you read the New Testament and you notice the apostles hundreds of years later after the events of the Old Testament, definitely, without any dispute, do understand and interpret the Old Testament as though it were about them. And of course, we're in the same New Covenant era, and we should see these passages as about us too. Like if you read Paul, there's not even a hint of, you know, this isn't about us in his writings. It's actually the opposite. He says that these things happened to them as examples and were written down for us. He says that specifically in 1 Corinthians 10 about the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. He says we should avoid temptation and we should take take an example from the Israelites who failed to, you know, resist temptation and were struck down for it. Certainly. And I think, and I think Paul walks the perfect balance right there in the thing that he says that like, on the one hand, the things that are happening to them are an example. Now, if it's an example, you need to ask the question, an example 
to whom like you know who like who what what's the object of that like you know who who is taking this example right here and i think in in one sense it's the example of the people themselves like you know they are reaping the consequences of their own actions but in the other sense like it's it's an example to us too and and paul gets right to there like it was written down and you know you don't write stuff down if you don't want it to be remembered and so i see paul walking perfectly this balance of like now obviously it happened to them because of what was happening with them but at the same time, we still can draw wisdom from it. And it was preserved for us in scripture for a reason. Right. And I, I mean, he, I would say all of that is true. And in addition, Paul literally says these things happen to them as examples. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, you know, if we, if we ignore the rest of, of the scriptures and just look at that one verse alone, the way the grammar works is Paul is basically saying the purpose of these events in history is for us. <laughs> right now, again, I, I'd say that if we take the broader context into perspective, then, you know, then maybe we wouldn't say it so harshly, but the grammar of that particular verse says, these things, the purpose for them is for us. So I think we can end the meat <laughs> for this episode, which is a lot of meat. It's a big a lot, a lot to say. Is a is a you know a twelve ounce T bone steak that we just mowed down on. As certainly, yes, with lots of spices. You know, that's the first Peter in there. Mm, mm-hmm. um, and I think we can end the episode with th- this mind blowing idea, or end the meat with this mind blowing idea that Jeremiah twenty nine eleven actually is somehow even more true and relevant for us today in the new covenant than it was for the original audience. I mean, the Lord is with us as we bide our time in exile. He really does have incredible plans for us. We actually should take inspiration from this verse. We who belong to Christ will in fact be prospered by God. We do have a hope in a future. It might be in the heavenly places only. We might not see any form of earthly prosperity and we might only reach that heavenly prosperity through suffering. Um, And that's a much stronger and deeper way to think about trusting God than this Christian bookstore version of, you know, not knowing which person to date. Right. Um, So I think I think we've sort of hit the nail there with like it's about you, just not in the way that a lot of people think it is. It's time for the other meat. So let's look at some applications that we can draw from this particular passage. So application number one, you know, even though we aren't the original audience of, well, I mean, any of the books of the Bible, they are still written for us. They were preserved for us by God, you know, because the church, it is, you know, in the church, we're in this new covenant era, and that includes... 2020, like that includes today. So let's be thankful and dig into the scripture that God has given to us as an example for our instruction. I feel like in only five episodes, this is now the 10th time we've told people that reading the Old Testament is important. (laughs) And there's probably, I mean, like, yeah, probably a hundred more times it'll be said. I think it's just going to keep being (laughs) application point number one, read the Old Testament. Like it's two thirds of the Bible and it's written for us. Like Paul said so. So like, let's seriously, let's dig in. Point number two, the Lord's plans for us are not usually going to look necessarily the way that we want them to. Sometimes the prospering that God definitely does promise for us as the church is going to look like years of hardship and suffering. Sometimes it means that there's going to be no earthly prosperity at all. But 
We are looking toward heavenly prosperity. And so we shouldn't be thinking that the Lord is like holding out on us or that, you know, you know, if we just would like pray enough times or, you know, do this thing that suddenly, you know, heavenly gifts would rain down on like that. That's not the, the way that we should be thinking about this, that we should be directing our mind toward heavenly things. Yes. And I think this ties into another topic we're definitely going to hit on the podcast someday. Um, that of the prosperity gospel, which, you know, is, is, is a hot topic in, in uh, the Christian world. And, and I think it's obvious, given our, our podcast today, that, that we're not, not supporters of it. But this idea that, you know, God is super, super interested in us being healthy and wealthy in this life. And so we're going to have to hit that again someday. Um, but, of course, this ties in a lot to that. God does not promise us any form of earthly prosperity if we follow him. The only thing he promises us is a cross. Like we have to take up our cross and follow him. And we absolutely are promised prosperity, but you know, not this Christian bookstore version of prosperity. It's not going to necessarily happen in this life. Now it may, (laughs) and that'll be a good thing to talk about when we, when we get in more detail about this, but it may happen. You haven't done anything wrong just because you have money, just because you have a nice house or whatever. And not necessarily. Um, so I guess I guess my point here for this application point is just don't expect earthly prosperity as a gift for obeying Jesus. And if you don't have earthly prosperity, if you get sick and die, the Lord hasn't abandoned you. Like that's the lesson to draw here. Amen. And to kind of elucidate that last point that you just made here for point number three is that when times are hard, The Lord does give us a promise about that, and that is that he will be with us, that when these hardships in our life do come, even as we are living as these metaphorical exiles in Babylon, that God is still with us, that he will fight for us and that he is going to redeem us. And, you know, he has in Jesus and he's going to gather us again someday. But we need to have patience around this. We need to exercise this patience and ultimate trust in God's provision, that it is in his timing that all things will come together, and that we have to have faith that he knows what he's doing. Certainly. I think this is a really great time for us um, Christians just in the West, you know, in in America and and Canada and Europe and basically wealthy, prosperous parts of the world. This is a super opportune time for us to to embrace this truth because I, if you haven't noticed i mean the opinion of the world is turning rapidly against a lot of the things that christians have historically stood for and so i mean when this happens when you see this super rapid like in just a couple decades the entire kind of like fabric of of morals in our society is just kind of completely flipped turned upside down um, you know, like Will Smith. <laughs> but uh, so we don't know how history is going to turn out, but it is entirely plausible. And I'm not a prophet and I'm not predicting it. You are neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet. Exactly. I'm not predicting it, but I think we need to accept the fact that it is plausible that Christians like us in places like the United States might experience real genuine hardship for our faith in our lifetimes. It's a very possible thing. Um, So because of that, like now is a good time for us to embrace this truth. The Lord is with us no matter what befalls us, right? If we are truly called according to his purpose. And, you know, that's a little (laughs) hint for our next podcast, Romans 8, 28, right? Exactly. (laughs) 
Yeah, and, and point number four is so, you know, meanwhile, while we're living as exiles here on Earth, perhaps experiencing intense hardship or perhaps maybe persecution is not super bad where you live right now. And I mean, you know, praise the Lord that, you know, he has been kind to you in that sense. But, you know, as we are living in this status of exiles, we should follow the commands that we find in Jeremiah 29. We should build houses and live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, give wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. Seek the welfare of the city that you have been exiled into and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. It's time to get down to doing the hard work of following Christ and being faithful to him and doing what he commands. God doesn't command us to hunker down in like a doomsday bunker, but he commands us to get married, have children, grow, prosper, seek the welfare of those who are around us, give in charity to those who have need and to worthy causes in our local communities, serve in the church, observe the Lord's Supper, and in all things, honor Christ. Amen. Can't put that one any better, any better myself. So point number five. Here is another application question, and, you know, it might ruffle a few feathers, but I think it's something that we need to hear, and it's something that we need to be preaching to ourselves. We should stop spending so much time thinking about politics. Amen. You know, this might come as a shock to some people, but the United States is much more like Babylon than it is like Judah under the kingship of David. You know, the the kingdoms of this age don't serve Christ. And there are thousands of examples of that. You know, and the chances that you or me through some particular action that we do is going to end up changing Babylon to like make it less Babylon-y you know, by like making a political tweet or something like there's zero chance of that happening. Like it's not going to happen. You or my Twitter accounts is not going to like start a revival that like, you know, returns us to worshiping God. It's not going to happen. But I think, John, if we just put more facts and logic into our <laughs> into our tweets and we get angrier and use more exclamation points and capital letters, then that's certainly going to turn Babylon into... <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's not. Because like Babylon hates God. Like that, the kingdoms of this world are opposed to God. And, you know, so and we're not going to change that or we, like it's not our political systems that are going to redeem the world. But God has given us a command to seek the welfare of our communities, of our nations. And connected with that, we might not be able to change the world, but we can work on changing ourselves to keeping ourselves pure from sinful desires that war against our souls. We can make positive differences, but those positive differences are in your own life in the life of your family, with your brothers and sisters who are part of your local church community. You can raise your children well in faith, spend time with them, honor your father and mother, love your wives, respect your husbands. And in all of these things, we will be truly rewarded by our father. It might not be earthly prosperity, but it will be heavenly spiritual prosperity. So we should be directing ourselves toward the hope and future of Jeremiah 29, 11. It's not politics. It's the kingdom of God. Certainly. And, you know, I, I think uh, 
it's definitely good to be aware of what's going on. And of all people, we are the last people <laughs> to ever be recommending you spend less time with politics. I mean, this is like there's a big H on my forehead right now saying hypocrite. Yeah, this is a word for us. Yeah, this is we're more preaching to ourselves here. Um, but it's like. Yeah, be aware of what's going on. And, you know, frankly, politics is kind of interesting and fun, right? It, it, it's, oh, it's great. You know, I mean, like, depending on, you know, your personality, some people love it and some don't. So some people who are listening to this, this doesn't really apply to. But others, you know who you are. <laughs> you know, and I'm talking to me here, <laughs> that you sometimes it's like one in the morning. And instead of just going to bed, you're on Twitter watching, you know, people, you know, wreck other people with... Facts of logic. We overuse that joke. Uh, it's just too good. But like you know, so you know, there's there's a balance to be had in all things. It is far more important for us to to recognize that we can change our our local church and our families and ourselves than to try to change Babylon. And there are certainly policies we can recommend and and go after that would make things a little better in Babylon and that's that can be part of seeking the welfare of the city. Some people are called to, you know, a career in in politics even. Um thank God not me. <laughs> um, but uh but some people are called to that and that's fine. That can be part of seeking the welfare of the city. But if you don't have that influence, it's probably not the greatest use of your time. And so that's my screed uh against Twitter. <laughs> Get off Twitter. <laughs> But you can lambast us on it if you want. Yeah, yeah, and that yeah. takes us to our <laughs> to our conclusion here. It's time for milk, not solid food. Well, Jeremy, that was a wild adventure into the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I, th I think we covered a lot of ground right there. But, you, you know, to quote, quote the Apostle Peter here, you know, there are some things that Paul says which are hard to understand. But, you know, Paul... The rest of the biblical authors, including Jeremiah, they said plenty of things which are, in fact, quite easy to understand. So let's close this episode by uh, just drinking in some of the simple wisdom from Proverbs. I'll be reading from chapter 16, verse 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Yeah, ultimately, we can make plans for our own lives, and they can be grandiose, but it's the Lord who has plans for us to give us a hope and a future, to prosper us. Well, in the immortal words of the philosopher Porky Pig, that's all, folks. We thank you for joining us. If anything you heard today has sent you into a blind theological rage, feel free to lambast us on social media, on Twitter. Alternatively, if you liked what you heard, or have Bible verses you want us to break down, or questions you think we can answer, you can send them to thejohn315podcast at gmail.com. That's thejohn315podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Matthew is drawing us back to that passage in Jeremiah, just like last episode, we looked at being drawn back by Jesus's words into the psalm. 
Matthew is drawing us back into this original context of Jeremiah, where we notice that this is hope for the future. And that encourages us to think about Jesus, the baby who does evade being killed by Herod, as that hope for our future. Dude, isn't that the dopest it's thing so good. Ever? It's I didn't know that until I started researching. Oh, it's so good. I didn't understand that quote. Sorry, I just had to say it. It's the dopest thing. I'm just I'm gonna leave that in. <laughs> No. <laughs> there it is, there it is. Sorry. <laughs> and that's totally what it is saying, too. Yeah, like, yeah. Do, 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 you, do you think that there's also this element of, like, even in the, like, the death and Jesus going into exile in Egypt and returning? Well, yeah, and, and I mean, <clears throat> we've already talked a lot about Matthew well, on this. Actually, let me, let me, okay, no, no, we, we can't do that on the podcast, but. What were you going to say? Oh, I was going to say maybe we could set that up and oh. include it, but it, the podcast is going to be long enough already. Yeah. Well, I mean, it would be great to talk about that, John, because, yeah, earlier in Matthew 2, it does quote the out of Egypt, I called my son uh, passage. So Jesus actually is described as, as a, you know, an exodus baby, <laughs> so, so to speak. We don't have time to get into that, man. We're going to have to do Matthew 2 someday. And we've already talked about Matthew a bunch on the podcast before. So, you know, we'll have to leave Matthew here eventually. Just right. let it be known. There's a lot that there's a lot of cool stuff about the exile and how it relates to the ministry of Jesus. Totally, totally. totally.